0: You're listening to the Screaming Pods Network. Drink beer. Think beer. You're listening to Brew Bloods. Brew Bloods, episode 127. I'm Mark, and today, Dustin and I are talking to Rachel Hart, life coach and host of the Take a Break from Drinking podcast, which focuses on something we don't talk about very often, craft beer, taking a break once in a while. We talk about why Rachel started down this path, being mindful of your drinking, why not everyone who drinks too much needs to go to AA, and she gives us a few tips for success. Don't forget to check out Rachel's excellent podcast, Take a Break from Drinking, and her brand new book, Why Can't I Drink Like Everyone Else, which you can pick up wherever fine books are sold. So let's get down on it. We're joined now by Rachel Hart from the Take a Break from Drinking podcast. Rachel, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So you're a big advocate, obviously, by the podcast name of uh, perhaps moderating your drinking and taking a break, as the name implies. And right now, I am, in fact, in the middle of a dry January, something I used to do all the time, every year, and Mm -hmm. I decided that I was going to do it again this year, and I wonder, like, every year, especially this time of year, obviously, being the new year, um, seems like taking on and uh, changing your life a little bit, uh, for the, hopefully for the better, happens. And everybody <laughs> talks about being, in our culture, from diet to alcohol to a number of things. You're either on the wagon or off the wagon. Right. Well, we don't very often talk about moderation. So why do you think that is?
1: Oh, I mean, we we love talking about not just drinking, but... Lots of things in a very black and white way. Uh, you know, I find that with food, I find that with alcohol, I find that with exercise. Um, you know, I. It's funny because when I when I work with my clients, one of the things that I hear so often is like, "Oh, I've been so good," or "I've been really bad." Right there's there's this sort of sense of us being one or the other, and I think that that just permeates through everything. But you know, when it comes to moderation, I think partly we don't talk about it a lot because we do have a very black and white view of any kind of struggle or problem when it comes to drinking. And so culturally, the way we talk about it is all right, either you're a normal drinker and you have nothing to worry about or you're an alcoholic mm-hmm. right? and you can never drink again. And so there's not a lot of room in there for talking about Moderation, talking about ways to be more mindful around your drinking, talking about ways to, um, ways to cut back. Right. I think it's a, it's a sensitive topic for a lot of people.
2: So what do you think, um, actually made you recognize there was that middle ground? Because like you said, you pretty much go from everybody can have a free for all with alcohol to, um, <laughs> right. you know, I, I, I gotta quit. I gotta go to AA or something like that. And it, I think that in between is kind of an area that's not really explored very much. Did did something happen with you uh, that kind of made you realize that there probably is some middle ground to that?
1: Well, I'll just tell you. So, you know, I started drinking when I was 17. I started drinking my very first week of college. And, you know, for me, from the get-go, I felt like, oh, this is how I become fun right? Like this is how I let go of this really uptight, anxious girl, right? And become outgoing and confident and funny. And that was great at first, except the more that I felt like I needed that, the more that I, or the more that I felt like the only way to access that was by drinking, the more I became dependent, right? I became feeling like, oh, I need to have this thing. And so, you know personally, I just went back and forth with it for a long time that, I mean, I, I liked accessing fun, Rachel, but I often didn't like the results that I was getting. Right. I didn't like how I was feeling the next day. I didn't like, you know, kind of waking up and thinking, oh, did I really do that? Did I really say that at the party? Um, And so I, I personally started trying to figure out what would work for me. Um, And I, You know, I knew that I wasn't always happy with the results that I was getting, but I also knew that everything that I heard out in the world about how to think about any kinds of um, problems around drinking it didn't resonate with me, and so I really became kind of fixated on figuring this out for myself and figuring out what made sense for me. And and that I think what's really important is that. There is no one right answer. I really believe that. I really believe that some people are going to, you know, once they're given the tools, are going to um, be happy moderating, and that's going to work for them. I think other people, you know, once they take a break and they start to discover what that is like, they may be happy to continue that. But the idea that there's only kind of one solution for everybody, for 7 billion people on this planet, it just didn't make sense
0: to me at the time. Yeah, I think one of my, because I have a lot of experience with uh, growing up in Al-Anon and going to many AA meetings myself because I had an alcoholic father and <clears throat> father or stepfather. And one thing I found is frequently people who, especially were new to sobriety, um, would find themselves telling other people because maybe they'd had a few too many, a couple of times that, oh, they too needed to be in <clears throat> AA. So it's Mm -hmm. an interesting, that extreme culture we have, like, you're definitely an alcoholic or no, I'm not an alcoholic or yeah, there's, we don't have very much gray area there.
1: Well, we, we don't. And I think it's also fascinating when you think about what we're taught about alcohol. I mean, I think back to what I was taught about alcohol. I was taught, um, just say no, right. Until Mm -hmm. you're 21, just say no, uh, don't drink and drive. If you drink too much, you will get drunk. But I had no idea what that amount was. And that was pretty much the end of the lesson,
2: <laughs> right? And, and frankly, and, who who just says no until they're twenty one,
1: <laughs> right? That's a rarity. exactly, exactly. And, but but I mean, I I think we're not we're not really given any information or any understanding of like so. How do I deal with urges, right? Mm-hmm. What does what does enough? How do I recognize what enough is and what it looks like for me? So we're we're kind of thrown into we're thrown into this world of like, oh, just go figure it out for yourself. And some people struggle figuring it out for themselves and then are left in this place of, oh, well, it must be something wrong with you. Right? It must right. be that must be why you're struggling, rather than the fact that there's just an absence of any any real meaningful information beyond, you know, don't do it until you're twenty one years old.
0: So I'm kind of interested in Addition to the background you already talked about. So, you are a life coach by profession. Yeah. And you focus on t- uh, taking a break from drinking. And yeah. how, I'm interested to know how did you go from, I mean, we know your story from being 17 and getting in college and drinking too much, but how did you turn that into a career as, a, especially a life coach? I mean, from what I understand, um, life coaches tend to focus on a variety of uh, your whole lifestyle, but you found kind of a niche. How, do, how did that happen? Yeah.
1: Uh, you know, it happened for me, I think, in large part because when when I started to understand, hey, you know what, there is a, w- there's a way that I can understand why I have this desire. And it makes sense to me. It's very logical to me. And also to understand, you know, I had all these stories about what it would mean if I was someone that didn't drink. Right. And, you know, starting to kind of understand that and unpack that for myself and realize how much of it was wrapped up in shame. Right. How much of it was wrapped up in like, I won't be normal. Um, you know, it will mean something's wrong with me. People will think that I have a problem. And so, I, you know, as I went deeper and deeper, I just was really fascinated. I'm really fascinated by how the brain works. I'm really fascinated by the idea that we're so much more capable to figure things out that I think we give ourselves credit for. And so as I was starting to do this, I realized just, hey, nobody talks about this, right? There's, there's, there's really so few resources other than AA. And, you know, I think that I, I really, I guess I decided <laughs> that's crazy. Why aren't there more resources? Why aren't there more people talking about it? I'm so passionate about it. And I kind of wanted to talk about it with everybody. Uh, and so I decided, well, maybe coaching is one way that that I can get into this. And I'll tell you, you, you know, I do um, I do work with people that get to a point where they're like, you know what, I want to take a break. I'm not happy with the results I'm getting. But I also work with a lot of clients who are like, that's not what I want to do. I just want to figure out how to moderate. I want to figure out how to drink less and not... Um, not always come home in the evening and feel like if I don't have that reward, you know, of a glass of wine or beer that I'm missing out. Right. And that my evening kind of sucks. Um, and so I really, I mean, I always tell people I'm not prescriptive, right? Like you need to figure out what's going to work best for you, but I can, I can be there along the way to help you figure that out.
2: Yeah. So specifically to the craft beer industry, um, which obviously we pretty much focus on, um Uh-oh. there's kind of a tendency in this whole craft beer industry to have a lot of events that are focused on a lot of consumption, you know, be it a lot of different beers, some high ABV beers, etc. Um so what's your thought on that aspect of the bat, of the uh craft beer culture? Um is that more of an individual issue or is that is that setting people up for bad habits to kind of have the whole industry focus on the fact that you should probably be consuming a lot of different beers to try a lot of different things. And when you do try, um, when you do try beers, they're going to have maybe high ABV and and stuff like that. Do you think maybe there's kind of an issue with that whole mindset?
1: Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you one of the things that I'm kind of curious about is how much that is, that is talked about in terms of, Oh, this is something that I'm drinking that has really high alcohol content. Right. Or is that just, I mean, because this isn't, this isn't my world. I was, you know, I was, I was uh, very snobby about cocktails <laughs>
2: Fair enough. <laughs> living
1: in New York City. You can understand that maybe. Um, and so I was never in the, the craft beer world. Um, but you know, that's one thing that I'm kind of curious about, right? Like, is there a conversation around that? Is there kind of any mindfulness around that? You know, I mean, I think the thing about consumption is that, you know, so often, it's funny, I was talking to a, I was talking to a really good friend of mine, um, because he is very into craft beer, and I was telling him, I was doing this podcast, and he was saying, you know, he was telling me, like, well, you know, some of the beers, like, they come in 22-ounce sizes, right? Like, they're, they're oh, yes. bigger. Very common, and, yes. Uh, and he was like, you know, if I get three quarters of the way through, Rachel, and I feel like I've had enough, I'm not going to waste it, yeah. <laughs> right? He was like, you can't save it. You can't put it in the fridge. It's not going to mm-hmm. keep its carbonation, you know, so you finish it. And it was interesting because I, I was like, okay, well, that is like, that's a fascinating thing for you to think about, right? Like what does enough mean? What does enough consumption mean for you? What does that look like? And how does that kind of butt up against these ideas we have about wasting, right? Like oh, I never poured, I would never pour it down the drain and waste it, but I would definitely <laughs> waste it in my body
2: and I don't right. want more. Yeah, this is yeah. a real release. I only get this one time a year. i gotta got to finish the whole 22 ounces or maybe two of those or whatever you have, yes. Yeah. There's, a, there, yeah. there's I mean, definitely a mentality around that in craft beer for sure. You know,
1: it's funny because I talk about this. A lot of people can identify this with the idea of the clean plate club, right, that like you got to sure. finish all the food on your plate, right? And it's funny because, you know, that idea came. I mean, it was actually an advertising campaign that came – out of the First World War, right? And it, because we were in a food-scarce environment and, and the U.S. government wanted to make sure that we had enough food. And so it was important if you're in a food-scarce environment that you're eating what you have because, you know, the, then who knows what will happen for the next meal. And then, of course, from there, then there was the Great Depression. And so, we you know, a lot of us have parents or grandparents that grew up in a food-scarce environment. Now we're in this food-abundant environment Right, and we still have this mentality, and you know, I talk about it with alcohol being in like the clean glass or the clean bottle club.
0: Yeah, it makes right. Sense.
1: That you're like yeah. well, what?
2: makes total sense.
1: Yeah, it would not, like of, of course I have to finish this; it'd be so wasteful. Yeah. Well, it's a lot, like, <laughs> right? And and to even and to,
0: yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say it, it's in some ways the, the beer industry is becoming a lot like wine in that you're more rare beers are getting to be more and more expensive. So, of course, I mean, if you mm-hmm. crack that bottle, it's got a limited shelf life of just a few hours maybe yeah. for most beers.
2: I paid $27 for 22 ounces. Like i you yeah, know, you gotta, I got to knock yeah. this out, yeah. even though it's 17% ABV. Yeah. It may taste terrible, right. but I'm still going to finish it.
1: Yeah. I mean, I mean it's in, one of the interesting things, I know this won't apply – um, well, maybe it will apply to your listeners. I'd be curious what you have to say about, you know, just looking at wine glasses and how those have increased in size just from the 1970s, right? So 1970s, you know, they're they're about six or seven ounces and holding five ounces of wine, which is basically a standard serving. Now you can go into Crate and Barrel and you can get a wine glass that is not a, a gag gift that is 23 ounces, <laughs> Right. And you can imagine right. what it's like when you put five ounces in a 23 ounce container. Right. <laughs> and right. so imagine if, like if if also, you know, you're you're drinking a 22 ounce beer and it's a higher alcohol um, content. Right. Like we we're not in a we're not in a food scarce or an alcohol scarce environment anymore. <laughs> yeah, definitely right. Not. So there's yeah. there's so much. And then we're given just no information on. And, well, how do I deal with urges? How do I understand what enough feels like for me? What you know? Why do I have all these worries about wasting something down the drain? But I'm okay drinking past the point of enough, or drinking to that point where I might not feel great later.
0: I, I think we're implicitly taught, in I don't know. I can't. I don't know about the rest of the world, but it, you know, it seems like in America, in this over-consumptive culture, that we're taught to satisfy our feelings through an exterior source. Some sort of external panacea, whether it's food, some people it's exercise, obviously Mm -hmm. some people it's drugs or alcohol. And we have this like going to extreme on every angle and that's the only way you can satisfy your inner demons or your scared little child inside.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, you know, my work obviously focuses on drinking, but you know, as soon as I start working with people, they really understand this is so much bigger than alcohol. Right, and I think that that's one of the other reasons why we don't talk a lot about moderation, um, why we don't talk a lot about mindfulness, because we so we've kind of demonized in many ways. Oh, if you have a problem, then alcohol is bad, <laughs> right. right? And so then, if you have that sense, and how can you talk about it in a mindful way? How can you talk about it, um, you know, in a way about like let's let's have a conversation about moderation? Because like, oh, if you have a problem, then it's bad. But you know, what people discover is that. What you said is so true, right? So, over drinking is not dissimilar from overeating, from overworking, from overspending, from overwatching, right? So, right. all these things that we do, but one because it's so abundant, right? Mm-hmm. We have so much rewards, so many rewards around us, and the other because, yeah, it's like okay, so I got home at the end of the day and I'm stressed and I'm anxious and now I have to get you know, dinner on the table for my family and I feel like I haven't had a break. Oh, I can get this reward. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that becomes sort of the way in which we learn how to reward ourselves or kind of take care of our negative feelings, which, you know, can for some people become not very sustainable.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I don't mean to demonize AA during this, but it sounds like I'm going to, um, (laughs) In my experience, it feels to me like <laughs> that's one thing that AA does not address. Is in the years and years that I went to these alumni meetings and went to AA meetings and watched these people, you know, go through the the step, the twelve steps, it didn't feel like they were really dealing with the underlying issue. What it frequently was is, let me get up and tell you a story of how I screwed everything up, and yeah. that's supposed to be a negative reinforcement of not to drink. Yeah, it's which, more of a punishment
2: yeah. than yeah. yeah
0: in not really getting at the underlying issues. I mean, you can do your fearless moral inventory. You can, um, make a, you know, apologies to everyone, but if you don't really get at the core issue, you're not going to figure out what made you drink in the first place.
1: Yeah. And, you know, and I think that, you know, one of the things that I always advocate for is like, let's just have more choices, Mm -hmm. right? Like let's just not have one choice, one predominant choice out there for ways that you can seek help. But, I think that there's nothing wrong with wanting to become a better person, right? And wanting to be a better version of yourself. But I don't think it's very sustainable to shame yourself Mm -hmm. into change. And that is predominantly how we do it, right? You know, as someone who grew up in New England and feels not so far removed from the Puritans (laughs) sometimes, (laughs) I mean, it really is this kind of sense of, you know, admitting how you are bad, Right, and your moral failings and your character defects is kind of the path to salvation. Mm-hmm. And that may have served people well in the sixteen hundreds, but <laughs> I feel like we're kind of past that. Right. And I and I what it, I see yes. you know, what I see is like so many people so many people already feeling already feeling shame around like I just I hate that I have this pull. I have this pull every every day at five, right? When I come home from work to have a glass of wine. And when I don't have it, I I think about it. And then I feel bad about that. And it's like, you already feeling enough shame, right? Everybody that I work with already has enough shame. They don't need more keep on, right? And what I try to do is like, let's take it away. Let's actually see if we can create change through maybe feeling good about yourself.
2: Yeah, and I think that's what's really unique about your approach because, like uh, Marcus was talking about here, um, I think a lot of the AA approach, and I I know you're not trying to address people that have that, like, an actual alcoholism issue. You're kind of in the, you know, someone's kind of overindulging too much and they kind of want to slow it down a little bit. But even that whole realm seems to be a little more focused on, I, I can't believe you did this, and your whole approach seems to be more of, well, you have control over everything you're doing. You could have a drink any day you want. It's kind of your choice, and I, I really think that's that's a nice positive twist on the traditional thinking around trying to calm down with alcohol. You know, not indulge in it, maybe get away from it completely, or even take a break from it. I, I, I think I think your approach is pretty unique in that that aspect to make it make it kind of a positive thing. Of I, I'm choosing not to do this right now.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that. You know, in my mind, there is a spectrum when it comes to looking at alcohol use, right? And on one, the far end of the spectrum, there is physical addiction, right? Where you literally, your body is getting sick unless you are consuming alcohol, right? Mm -hmm. On the other end of the spectrum, right? There's kind of like risky behavior. And there's a lot in between. And the problem in my mind is that we don't, we don't see it as a spectrum, right? We see it just as this very black and white issue. And, I, you know, one of the reasons why I think the AA model didn't resonate for me is because, like, I just could not get on board with the idea of being powerless. Mm-hmm. It just, I felt like, listen, if I'm going to figure this out for myself, it's because I'm going to have, I'm going to figure it out, <laughs> right? Because I'm going to be the one to do it. And that felt to me like I need to come from a place of power, not from a place of powerlessness, right? It just never, I never could connect with that idea. Right. Um, and and I think a lot of people are kind of in that same boat. You know, I always say like alcohol just sits there, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Um, you know, it's just sitting there, right? But you're you are there, you have choice. Now, sometimes it's very hard and can be challenging and it feels like, you know, It feels like exercising that choice is difficult, but I, you know, what I remind people is like, did anyone ever teach you about how to handle urges? Did anyone ever teach you right about what is causing your desire in the first place? Has anyone shown you right? How, how you can use your brain, how you can build a pause muscle. Like nobody, we have such a powerful brain and nobody gives us an instruction manual. (laughs)
0: Right.
1: right? It's just like, just wait till 21. (laughs) Then you're going to be fine.
0: Yeah, so it sounds like, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it sounds like you might agree with what I've always thought for a long time. And because AA and doctors, you know, the AMA, they like to say that alcoholism is a disease. Whereas I've known people with real diseases, and I'm not trying to put down alcoholics and the struggle they're going through because there are people that are physically addicted. And I get that, but to me, it's not a disease because you can, if you just taper down, even those people who are physically addicted, you can live without alcohol. You know, true disease is going to kill you. And I said, that's why it's a disease. It's going to kill you eventually if you keep going this way. Well, yeah, but you're making a choice every time you take a drink. And some of us are more, I guess, mindful of making that choice or not. So do you agree with that, that alcohol is not a disease?
1: Yeah, I don't. I don't think that it's a disease. Um, You know, the way that I look at it, you know, people often talk about like, well, what about being predisposed? right? Like, what about having, like, a family history? Or what about, like, growing up in an unstable environment or whatever? And I always say, you know, predisposed is not the same as predetermined. And I think that we mix up those two words a lot. You know, I also, my background before becoming a life coach, I spent over a decade working in human rights. And one of the areas um, that I was exposed to was harm reduction. And, you know, the idea is that, that, you know, things like drugs and alcohol are going to be with us, right? We're not going to eradicate them. You know, alcohol has been with us for thousands of years. It's going to stay. And so can we, can we start to look in a way of how do we reduce harm? And one of the things I think a lot of people are coming out and starting to talk about, you know, you are teaching your brain something when you have a drink. Right. Mm -hmm. And it might be as simple as you're teaching your brain that it gets rewarded at the end of the day. You're teaching your brain that alcohol is the way that you loosen up in social situations. But your brain is learning something. And so I think understanding it through that lens of learning and what you are teaching. And we don't I wasn't thinking about that when I was 17 years old. I wasn't thinking that I was teaching my brain anything. But of course I was. Mm -hmm. right? I was teaching my brain, oh, this is the way to not feel awkward and insecure, right? This is the way to be fun. And the more I taught it to my brain, the more I I reached for a drink in order to feel those ways, the more that lesson became ingrained. And the more I felt like, oh, I I can't, (laughs) like, I don't want to go to a party without it. And so I think that also just gives the power back for people to understand, oh, what am I teaching myself? Whether it is just This is what I do at a restaurant. This is what I do at the end of the day. This is how I socialize. This is how I celebrate things. Just understanding that your brain is always learning.
2: So to kind of piggyback on that whole idea, do you have any kind of just general moderation tips to make it easier on somebody that's looking to maybe cut back or maybe take a complete break, but even just cutting back as well?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I'll tell you for cutting back, one of the things that I really recommend that people focus on first is really asking themselves and trying to understand for themselves what is enough right like what is that quantity that feels sufficient that where you feel satisfied that isn't tied to how much is in the bottle right or how much is left in your class and that is i will tell you <laughs> that is something that uh, that is challenging for people it is challenging to kind of you have to be present, right? You have to actually be in full awareness and attention to what you are doing and what you're consuming. And we're not often used to consuming alcohol in that way. We're used to consuming it around other people, or we you know, we grab a beer and then we sit down in front of the TV, or we're drinking while we're cooking. And so to really just focus in on drinking, you don't have to do it all the time, mm-hmm. right? But I, you know, one thing I have people do, even just as an experiment once, like just you and the drink, like, just, that's it. Try consuming that, right? Try to understand what enough feels like for you. And I think most people are really surprised what they discover. Um, that's one thing. I think also for people wanting to moderate, really learning, you know, you, I call it a pause muscle, right? Like, you can build the muscle of pausing. And the way that I, I liken an urge kind of like to a, a toddler Right. So you like take a three year old to a grocery store and they see the candy and they want the candy and that toddler is going to throw a fit. And if you immediately say like, oh, I can't deal. I can't deal with you throwing a fit. This is embarrassing. <laughs> Everybody's staring at me. Here's the candy. Right. That toddler's like, sure. oh, OK, great. This is what we do when we go to the grocery store. <laughs> <Yeah>. right? <laughs> right. But yep. part, part of it is if you're like, look, you can throw a fit. You can freak out and, and scream and cry and say how much you want it. You will, that toddler's eventually going to exhaust herself, right? She's eventually going to give up when she realizes she's not getting it. Mm-hmm. So really thinking about an urge in that way. You know, people we're so – no one teaches us anything about urges or how to handle them. And so we get that kind of toddler, oh, I want it, I want it, I want it, I want it, I want it. And we don't realize, you know what, it will eventually pass, if you, if you practice that pause, you can learn how to be okay with that, that part of your brain that's like, gimme, 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 I want the reward. Mm. And so I think that those are two, you know, those are two ways. And listen, they were, they require mindfulness, right? They require a lot of attention and awareness so that a lot of times when people are drinking, they're looking to do the opposite, right? They're looking to tune out, right? Um, I'd say with taking a break, you know, the biggest mistake that I see is that people, people will go into a break period and it will just be about counting days. It will just be about saying no. And, for, you know, there's nothing wrong with that in the sense that I do think a lot of people really benefit from just experiencing, hey, what is it like to have a week or a month? alcohol-free? What does that feel like? Mm -hmm. But I, I always think, like, use that time to understand the habit better, right? Like, don't just focus on saying no over and over and over again and using willpower, but really understanding what's driving the habit. And so there's so much you can focus on there in terms of when you're feeling that desire, what sort of situations it comes up, you know, what kind of stories you have about what it means to be the only one at the table, at the restaurant that isn't drinking. If you can, if you're willing to go there during a break period, to me, that is, it's so much more beneficial because there's so much more for you to learn about how the habit works.
0: That's true. You can kind of learn about yourself by watching other drunk people in some ways. <laughs> <laughs>
2: That's very true.
0: Mm-hmm. Although my, uh, my patience for dealing with drunk people when I'm the sober one is very, very thin.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's funny. You know, I find that, um, you know, I will say that, you know, most of my friends, in fact, really, I think all of my friends drink. Um, and, you know, when I hang out with them, there's like a period where I think it's fun to be around people that are, that are drinking. And then like you get you get to that point. Yeah. <laughs> then you're like, Oh, this is no longer fun. <laughs> like You've told me that story three times. And also, you're kind of yelling that story at me. <laughs> um, but it's hard. I think, at, you know, at first for me, it was hard to even enjoy that period of being the only one that wasn't drinking because I was so wrapped up in all this story I had about what it meant and what it meant about me and what it be- meant about my future. Um, but, but yeah, it is, it's interesting, I think, to, to see what that's like and practice being around people when you're not drinking and they are.
0: Let me ask you this, you kinda of, this is kinda of going back to the spectrum earlier and and that being the sober person. You've talked about several times in your show about people who there are some people who they drink to excess, obviously, and then there's some people who they can have a drink in their hand and they'll finish it. And I've got a friend okay. like that that she might have half a cider when she you know, maybe a few times a year, but she really doesn't care about it. She enjoys the taste while she's doing it, but otherwise she could take it or leave it. So on the along that spectrum, what do you think the big difference is between those people and alcoholics and is it, do you think it's genetic? Maybe they were taught correctly how to, you know, how to deal with their feelings.
1: Um, you know, I think one of the big differences, and this was always, this this felt like an impossible thing for me to believe because I was someone that was just like, alcohol is amazing and I love it. It's the best thing ever. <laughs> sure. Right. And to, to actually be like, yeah, there are actually some people, Rachel, that are out there and like, they're not really into it they don't really like it. They might drink it a little socially because it's one of those kind of social norms, but might not really enjoy it the same way. And that for my brain, was <laughs> like, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> like, really? Is that possible? But I, you know, I think that, I think that's part of it a lot. You know, I encounter a lot of people who, when they find out, you know, the work that I do, they will actually say, you know, I don't really like drinking. I just kind of the only reason I have wine in my glass right now is because it's like everybody else does. And if I didn't, it would be a big deal. And people would ask me a lot of questions. So I think there's that. I do also think that, you know, we are always teaching our brains something. Right. And so, you know, I think back to my college roommate. (laughs) You know, we were going to the same parties in college and we were both we were both getting drunk and drinking a lot. But I think that we were teaching our brains very different things because I was really using it as a way to get rid of social anxiety. And I think she was using it as like, a, hey, this is like a kind of like a rebellious thing to do, right? And so, I mean, when you, when you factor that in, you know, she may have gotten to that period where it's like, okay, I don't need to rebel any more, anymore. I did it, right? I can do it. It's sure. fun. Um, But I was still like, no, I I still feel anxious. (laughs) Like The anxiety hasn't gone away. So I think a large part is, um, you know, what you're teaching your brain differently. And, you know, I'm sure that there are um, genetic predispositions. I just think that we put way too much kind of stress on that, way too much stress on it being something, oh, there's something wrong with your brain, uh, rather than understanding it as what you're teaching your brain when
2: you drink. So you were talking about your um, activities in your 20s and kind of what you thought about alcohol at that time. Um, So where do you find yourself now uh, with alcohol? Have you completely abstained now or do you do it in moderation? Or just kind of of where have you taken uh, your personal journey with alcohol at this point?
1: Yeah, so I mean what I will tell you is what I basically decided in my early 30s, I said, you know, I'm going to take a break from drinking because I want to figure this out. I want to figure out why I feel like I need it. I want to figure out why I feel like I have a pull towards it and I'm not going to tell myself that I can never have it again, but it but I will I promise myself I'm going to figure out these things first. And so that was the commitment that I made to myself. And you know, the the longer that I went, the more I started exploring this, the more I was like I really challenged myself quite a bit. Like, go, like, don't hide out. Don't isolate, right? Sure. <laughs> don't go live in the woods. I was really like, I want to be fun. I want to be social. I want to hang out with people. I was single at the time. Like, I want to date. I want to meet someone. And so I really challenged myself to go into these situations without alcohol. And I started to learn more and more that I, I just didn't need it the way that I thought I did. And so I think at some point I kind of turned a corner and and was like, I, I think, and this seems crazy, but I think my life is better. <laughs> like, I think I really enjoy this. I really kind of enjoy waking up on the weekends and early, right? And I'm not hungover. And I enjoy the fact that I'm not ever worrying about like, oh, why did I say that? right? At the happy hour after work. And so I, as I watched my thinking change around it, I watched myself have less, less and less desire. And so I wasn't, I didn't feel like I was missing out. I didn't feel like I was, you know, Oh God, all these people get to drink and I don't, I, I really didn't have that. And so I got to a place where I felt like, yeah, I really like this. And I'll tell people, I don't ever say I'm never going to drink again. Right. And I've had alcohol on a handful of occasions, Mm -hmm. Um, but it just, like, it doesn't have that kind of pull over me, and I think that, you know, it is one of the most common questions that I get asked from my podcast listeners because it's, it's it's such a different way of thinking about it and the idea that you could go from really loving something and feeling like you need it to actually being like, I don't know, I feel pretty good. Right. I don't, I don't know that I have all this desire. I think it, it so kind of blows people's minds. True. Um, but again, like I'm not prescriptive, like what feels right for me. And, and this is what feels right for me right now. I mean, I don't know where I'll be 10 years from now, but you know, what feels right for me isn't necessarily what's going to feel right for the next person. And so what I always tell people is just focus on like, do you like the results that you're getting? You like the results that you're getting, great. But if you don't, let's take a look at why you don't like those results.
0: I don't want to keep you too much longer. I want to ask, if you think someone has a problem, do you have any advice that someone who wants to talk to a friend or a loved one about that maybe they have a problem or maybe they should consider taking a break, how do you deal with that from someone who is concerned that someone else has a problem?
1: Oh, do you mean like if you're concerned that a friend has a problem yes. or yeah. you're, you're concerned yeah. yourself? Oh, yeah. if a friend has a problem. yeah. I mean, I think, it, I think it's a challenging thing to do, right, because um, what I have seen is that if people are going to seek out help, they're going to seek out help when they want to seek out help and on their terms. Um, you know, I definitely have had people, I know people have kind of like raised, like, oh, I'm, I'm listening to this podcast. It has like a different approach about this. Um, and, you know, I will tell you that, you know, I had, I remember um, when I was living in New York, I had a friend pull me aside and was just like, I just don't like who you are. I, I don't like who you are when we go out together and when we're drinking. And, and you know, I, I don't, it was a really powerful thing to hear, but it wasn't also the thing that changed for me, right? Mm-hmm. It was, it's like, a, it's a really hard thing to hear from another person. Um, and I think just, I think just kind of being supportive and also non-prescriptive, right? Like you need to go do this. Um, but even just saying like, Hey, I'm kind of worried. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. to me that feels like it often comes across as like prescriptive, go seek help. You need to go do this. Yeah. Yeah. But I think I really do think it is a challenging thing to talk about
2: with other people. When someone is ready to Maybe they took a break for a while, um, which has actually happened with several people I know that do love craft beer. Uh, I think almost everybody I've known has probably taken at least a couple of months off, maybe maybe even longer, um, because sometimes there's just a lot going on and people drink a lot at certain times of the year and they want to back off for a little bit. When somebody is ready to reincorporate alcohol back uh, into their lives, uh, do you have kind of a method that you suggest they do that?
1: Yeah, I mean, so so really, um, you know, one of the one of the ways to start is to start with that um, that exercise I talked about of really thinking about what is enough and experiencing what is enough. And I will tell you, I think that's something that you have to do on your own um, rather than trying to walk into a party or walk into a bar or do it around your friends. Mm-hmm. And that can like listen that alone will feel very odd for some people because a lot of people have very st- like strong I don't drink by myself right? They've made these kind of rules. But I do think if you're going to figure out moderation for yourself, it starts with that. Um, You know, the other thing that I often work on with people is, okay, so we know that your drinking in previously was kind of run by your urges, right? Like you have that urge, I want some, I want some more, I want another. So can you work on planning in advance. And this is something, you know, when I'm talking about planning in advance, I work with people planning in advance, like 24 hours in advance, which everybody kind of Mm -hmm. comes kicking and screaming at me because it's like, well, how could I possibly know what's going to happen tomorrow? (laughs) What if I get invited to this event? But I think that that's actually a really important exercise, right? Because what it's forcing you to do is stick with a plan that you made well, in advance of feeling any urges, well in advance of like, "Oh God, but this event came up, and I'll be the only one not drinking," and really starting to to make your decisions around drinking from that place rather than just going with urges. i also I also recommend that that people really work on building that pause, right? And so whatever that pause looks like for them, oftentimes, you know, we won't we won't have kind of a practice muscle at building in any time. But, you know, again, it really comes down to, okay, so you're starting to reintroduce it, really paying attention to, are you liking the results? Both, both do you like how you act? Do you like how you feel later on in the next day? But really keeping that in mind. And I think it's challenging to do without looking at all your stories about what drinking or not drinking means about you so I do spend a lot of time focusing with that on people rather than just have it being about counting Mm -hmm. a certain number of drinks I think really understanding we make alcohol mean so much (laughs) um when it really doesn't mean anything (laughs) um and I I think understanding that is a really important piece of the puzzle
0: so it sounds like all around we just need to be more mindful of ourselves and our own attitudes and wants and needs yep Mm -hmm. yep All right, Rachel Hart, thank you for your time. You can pick up Rachel Hart's new book, Why Can't I Drink Like Everyone Else? You can find it wherever fine books are found. And you can find a link to her podcast on rachelhart.com, that's H-A-R-T. And if you want a consultation, phone consultation with Rachel, uh, you can find all the information there. Anything else you would like to uh, toss out there for people?
1: Uh, Just that, you know, it's okay to to feel like... uh, You know, you want to change your drinking. It doesn't have to mean anything about you. And you can find a solution that works for you and feels good for you. And it doesn't have to necessarily be, um, you know, abstaining forever or keeping things the way that they are. Thank
0: Thank you for your time, Rachel. Thank Thank you. you. Well, thanks for listening to yet another episode of brewbloods if you're not subscribed to the show you should be it's absolutely free and you can subscribe anywhere fine podcasts can be found through apple podcasts google music spotify or any podcast app out there above all please tell a friend about us we'd really appreciate it if you want to reach out to us you can find us as at brewbloods on all the social networks or email us at brewbloodshow at gmail.com that's brewbloodshow at gmail.com so for everyone here brewbloods this is mark saying pro Oh, 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 oh,